Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this podcast, I will take up the work of Takeo Doi and his profound influence on Japan as the key interpreter of all things Japanese and really the kind of salesman of the notion of a Mai as the reigning understanding. The connection that I'm making here, and even if one has limited interest in Japan, I think this reflects back then on a Western discourse, that what Doi is depicting in a Mai is, I'm claiming, Freud's death drive, that he's privileging the death drive, in a way that Western psychoanalysis has not privileged. And maybe privileged if uh, Doi were to say it, that he would say, well, it is simply that in Japan, death then is an openly embraced understanding. Whereas in a Western discourse, there is the idea that death is hidden, it's hidden behind a Christian facade, or it's hidden behind a a kind of denial, and that there are all sorts of fortresses put into place so that one cannot see that, in fact, Amai, in Doi's estimate, is the reigning force, or death is the reigning force in all human thought. In a way, this coincides with what uh, Freud, Lacan, Zizek, what they're going to pronounce is the truth about the world. And maybe in this sense, in as much as Christianity, uh, particular forms of Christian thought in the West have not understood the role of psychoanalytic understanding of death, and in the process, I would claim, have not really understood the biblical depiction of the way in which death is taken up into the self. I'm afraid that in these contractual theologies or Western theology, the hard work of overcoming the death drive, the work of death, has not been done. And that is precisely, I think, the thing that Christianity is aimed at, or as we go through this discourse, its strangeness opens up to us the bizarre understanding that is being depicted, but at the same time, I think we can look in the mirror and realize, oh, that this is precisely what has happened in the West under a different frame of reference, specifically taking up today the work of Takeo Doi, who is key, I think, in the development of Japanese self-understanding, but also a key insight, I think, just into how the discourse surrounding Sigmund Freud has functioned, and particularly his focus on the death drive. Doi is a, a kind of oriental representative of what Jacques Lacan and Slavoj Zizek have done in a kind of different note and, a, and in a different way. But all then have focused upon the death drive or the latter half of Freud, Eros uh, in some way mitigated then by the death instinct. And so in the post-war period, the place of prominence clearly in psychoanalysis, but also in Nihon Jinron or the Japanese goal of self-definition is to, to, goes to Takeo Doi, who was Heisaku Kosawa's pupil, if you remember. Kosawa is the one who goes and studies in Vienna with Sigmund Freud, proposes an alternative psychological principle for Japanese. And Doi then will take up and develop this work in his 
major work, uh, which has seen, it's not just an academic work, but it has gone through over a hundred editions and is the most popular success in Japan and thoroughly disseminated in the mass culture. And so that's the significance of this. It's not that there is a cabal of psychoanalysts that are studying Doi's work, but in fact his work has become I think, key in Japanese self-definition. And so upon Doi's return from study at the Menninger Clinic in 1952, he began studying and doing training analysis under Kosawa that would lay the groundwork to which he would adhere. And I've uh, talked about Kosawa's departure from Freud with the Ajase complex, that is, it's the alternative to the Oedipus complex, which even in 1952, maybe, the idea that one wants to kill his father and marry his mother did not fit the Japanese sensibility, especially in regard to the emperor. In fact, in many ways, the Oedipus complex does fit Japanese focus, but but that's neither here nor there. So this means that Japanese psychoanalysis will not emphasize Freud's psychosexual stages, which are connected then to the Oedipus complex, but will develop primarily within the parameters of what Freud calls the Nirvana principle, which is a fusion of Eros and Thanatos, uh, the death instinct and the life principle. And in this understanding, psychic suffering is not imposed through any necessary psychosexual conflict, as in between the self and the father or society, but arises in the separation and the need to return to a pre-edible stage of dependence on the mother. And this will be embraced then as the goal uh, in psychoanalysis. And so this places Japanese psychic development completely outside of the Western framework while still following the later Freud. And this is sort of the irony is that there is an undermining of Freud pitting later Freud against the earlier Freud. But it will serve to establish the uniqueness of the Japanese psyche, which in Nihon Jin Ron we've been through, that the Japanese part of the understanding is that all things Japanese are unique. And of course, this uniqueness is put forward in a time in which Japan would be subjugated as an inferior people. And so the emphasis is in Orientalism and as well in psychoanalytic studies is a reversing then of this castigating sort of judgment. But this development in psychoanalytic literature, literature, which of course they're not setting the development of the psychology within the context of the culture or even aware of Nihon Jin Ron, it will give rise to what is known as the Japanese problem in psychoanalytic studies because there is a kind of non-adaptability of Japanese psychoanalysis to the Western framework. And certainly Doi's study has thoroughly saturated Japan's studies. And with Frank Johnson's book advocating Doi as a new model for psychoanalysis, I guess we could say that it's broken out of the Japanese context that so Doi's work has had in Japan popular and professional acceptance. Interesting then, much as with uh, Tsutada Nobutsunoda, it is uh, also then having success in the West. Doi never explicitly says what I'm claiming is happening here. In fact, as far as I know, no one has traced this, but it becomes very clear that he's setting the framework of his earlier work on Amai 
within Freud's understanding of the Nirvana principle. Doi quotes from D.T. Suzuki and concludes that Zen Satori, enlightenment, as expounded by the late Daisetsu Suzuki, might be interpreted as a positive affirmation of this type of a mind. And so Doi is contrasting negative attitudes toward dependence with Zen, which puts a positive em emphasis on dependence and develops its full potential. Doi, interestingly, here poses the question that in a uh, Freudian or Lacanian framework, you know, is called the fundamental fantasy. That is, that he's advocating a belief in the fundamental fantasy and no departure or manipulation of this fantasy. Which, in a sense, that even in uh, Zizek and Lacan, you can't really undo the fantasy, but at least you, one might question it. And so, in a Zizekian understanding, you know, that he would privilege the hysteric or the one who questions the structure of the law, the structure of the framework of society over and against the pervert who in, in fact just acknowledges that this is the way things are. And in this sense, the Japanese psychic development, again, I'm not saying one thing is true over and against another. I'm just gauging these two discourses against one another. But in a Western framework, a Lacanian, Zizakian understanding, that the Japanese understanding would fall into the perverse category, perverse, not simply being derogatory, but a psychosocial understanding. But here's Doi's quote, the Zen question, what did one look like before one's mother and father were born? Uh, gets at the point. And so the stress is on the indivisibility of subject and object, or of the self and others. That is, that it's, there, there is this basic uh, convergence of the self and undoing of the ego. And so Amai, in Doi's description, is an attempt psychologically to deny the fact of separation from mother. It works to foster a sense of oneness between mother and child, and is the long attempt to deny the fact of separation. That is such an inseparable part of human existence, I'm just quoting Doi, and to obliterate the pain of separation. It precedes the developmental psychosexual stages, and as in Freud's description, it has no character, Brother Doy says, as with the way of the gods, seems consistently to have extolled the principle of no principle and the value of no value. It is as in Nishida philosophy, Doy explains, the pure experience in which subject and object merge. It is pre-linguistic, pre-rational, and yet it is a primary aspect of the Japanese psyche in every phase of life. It is, quote, a key concept for understanding not only of the psychological makeup of the individual Japanese, but of the structure of Japanese society as a whole. And so this truth is posited, truth in quotes here, as then fundamental to what it means to be Japanese. Doi describes a my consistent with Freud's interpretation of the death instinct 
and I, I'm making this link that Doi is not saying this is the death instinct, but it clearly is that. It is not a longing to die, but a denial of the importance of death. Doi says this was first brought home to him with the death of his own parents, with the consequent severing of my bonds with them, he says, I became aware of them for the first time as independent persons. As long as they were alive and he could practice a my, there was not the sense that they were separable from himself in death. And so he explains that for his parents or anyone that dies, the experience is one not so much of separation, but of attaining the goal, the perfection of a my, perfect oneness. And he connects this with the notion in Buddhism in Japanese Buddhism anyway, of ancestor worship and the idea that upon death they now, quote, lie in the realm of beyond the anguish of unsatisfied mind. The struggle is complete. There is mergence in fulfillment in death. This is, he suggests, where the Japanese concept of divinity lies. And this does not contradict he says, the traditional belief that considered emperor the embodiment of satisfied am I as a god incarnate, but is complementary to it. The emperor, who is no different from a babe in arms, in his complete dependence on those around him, is proof, quote, of the respect accorded to infantile dependence or of the complete subject-object identity achieved in death. If you remember back to Freud's uh, depiction and derogation of the Japanese emperor system, Doi is not departing from that, but is affirming it, but then turning the value on its head. Doi's teacher, Kosawa, had linked Buddhist theology with Japanese psychoanalysis with an express intent, he says, to awaken a true national consciousness. And this consciousness would embrace Mount Fuji, which is very significant, the splendor of the cherry blossoms, and the idea that the people enjoy an after everlasting life as members of a great family circle. In uncovering the psychology of Amai, Doi is finding what his teacher wished. The cherry blossom is the symbol of death, Fuji as Mother Nature, and everlasting life being the unbroken submissive passage from one to the other is the psychological stance captured in Amai. It is an everlasting life achieved through disindividualization. And so in Freud's term, it is simply the incapacity to accept death or to distinguish eros from thanatos. In Amai, then, Freud's death principle has taken center stage. It is a conclusion, I think, that Doi, at some level, consciously embraces, but never he never explicitly says as much. His Western disciples even have ignored or refused to acknowledge this is what he's doing. Frank Johnson's may be the uh, most serious scholarly exposition of Amai, and he attempts to integrate Doi's notion into a new understanding of psychoanalytic theory and is maybe successful in bringing out the universal importance, he says, of dependence. But I think by ignoring Freud's death instinct, and 
Johnson dismisses it in one early reference. There is no place left in the developmental psychosexual theory for a non-developmental phase that endures throughout life and constitutes the key to the psyche. And so, in a sense, he, under the guise of Eros, he's really prescribing Freud's Thanatos, uh, if you're just using Freud as the measure here. With Eric Fromm and the general embrace of Eastern religion in the West, there is a sustained unwillingness to go all the way. Fromm turned aside from Suzuki's cosmic unconscious to coin the term cosmic consciousness, and he ultimately fused Freud's later work on the death instinct with his own understanding in order to peddle a softer version of what Wilhelm Reich calls the genital man. The escape from freedom that he decried could be halted by a conscious embrace of the id, but not a complete, in the Japanese sense, giving up of the self to the unconscious forces of the id, of course, which would Freud would uh, identify with death. But Doi has no such reservations. The reverse that his teacher had already brought about in Japanese psychoanalysis implied a full embrace of the death instinct in the id, not in Freudian terms as over and against arrows, but as in Zen Buddhism, as a principle that stands alone. So Freud's Western disciples ignored or refused the death instinct, but it undermined any notion of therapeutic cure short of death while his Japanese disciples sided completely with Thanatos. Maybe one could say as much of his uh, French disciples. And so Freud's theory was founded on the idea that the psyche is involved in a, in a duel between opposing forces. And he posited the dualism as existent between the antithesis of the sexual and the self-preservation instincts, which he became unhappy with. He realized that this really doesn't account for the psychic conflict, and he rejected this notion when he realized there was no way of distinguishing narcissistic libido from which the sexual instincts arise from the self-preservation instinct. And so he turns to the ambivalence of love and hate. He begins to explore. And all of this is, you know, it sounds fairly abstract, but he's dealing with uh, people in the clinic. And so he's trying to describe his sadistic and masochistic patients. And he realized that it could be explained through the fusion of sexual and aggressive instincts only if there were a duality of instincts and not a mono-instinctual understanding. And so he finally turned to the ultimate biological antithesis of life and death and linked a universal biological death instinct with the psychology of masochism. And he will posit masochism as the primary move in the death instinct. Sadism is simply masochism turned outward. And in this way, ambivalence, such as that of love and hate and sadism, or any form of aggression toward self or others, is simply a secondary expression of this conflict between life and death. And so sadism directs the death instinct outward, where masochism directs it inward, resulting in either the desire to kill, kill the self, 
or to kill the other, depending on whether it's masochism or sadism. Again, we're, we're still in the realm here of the Oedipus complex and the Ajase complex, but in a Japanese understanding as over and against a Western psychoanalytic understanding. There really has been no, you know, the alternative to Freud posed between this basic dualism. But at the same time, most have not been willing to follow Freud into what becomes a complete therapeutic pessimism. Rather, Western psychoanalysis has concentrated on the psychosexual stages. It is a kind of mono-instinctual uh, understanding, and it has been a, an undercutting of Freud's entire theory of dualism, and which really throws psychoanalysis into crisis. So it's not strange that Doy, who introduces an array of ideas connected to a my, which are unexplainable apart from his general theory, is achieving recognition in the West. So he's reintroduced the other side of the Freudian dualism, allowing for an explanation of data that Western analysts are only now recognizing. It's interesting that shame is once again surfacing in psychological studies, always very much present in Japanese psychoanalytic literature. And so what has not been recognized is that Japanese psychoanalysis is mining such a new array of phenomena because like Freud, it has gone beyond the pleasure principle to a psychology of death. Doi has even gone beyond Freud in giving a definite character to an instinct Freud thought was cloaked in the obscurity of repression. Doi, through Amai, links it to all of Japanese society. And for Doi, then, the death instinct, Thanatos, is the final, the full explanation of the Japanese psyche, but also is the resolution to the problem of life itself. Freedom, for example, in this understanding, is the freedom to amayadu. Freedom does not mean being free from repressive mechanisms, but in fact being free to employ them, being free to enjoy your symptom, in the words of Zizek. It does not mean being independent of the group, but being in a group that will indulge complete emotional dependency. And the individual is completely free to amayadu, to depend upon them. And he does not need to express gratitude to the group because he does not feel separate from the group. Though he thinks this explains the confusion of the Meiji, period. Japanese imagined themselves to be pursuing Western freedom while they had in mind its Japanese opposite. A Western sense of freedom, Doi explains, is essentially understood as a transaction between God and man in which God grants man freedom as a gift, and that would include freedom over death itself. For Japanese, freedom in practice existed only in death which was why praise of death and incitements toward death could occur so often. And Doi explains, this is the Amai psychology. Doi makes clear that the Western notion of freedom is an illusion. It's cherished by only one section of the population. 
and that faith has recently begun to deteriorate into an empty shell. Marx's thought as to the alienation of capitalism, Nietzsche's proclamation that Christianity was the morality of slaves, and Freud, who taught us that the spiritual life is controlled by the unconscious, have broken the faith of Western freedom in Doi's estimate. And so the West is caught in a morass of despair and nihilism. If only they had known that the Japanese experience long ago taught the psychological impossibility of freedom. This is not to say that Western man can sidestep or transcend a mind. No one can conquer the lure of death. Western man has been deceived by both Christianity and secularism, and realization of this may have driven Western men at times to their deaths, and they have been prey to a hidden amai, which in Japan is openly embraced and expressed. If we ask what all of this means, we'll draw this out in a final podcast, but we can look now and see that what we've actually described through Freud is a culture of death in Japan that openly embraces death. And what we've described in the West is also a culture of death that in fact indulges in death and the death instinct on the other side of the coin in and through a denial. But in the end, what we have in each instance is the same thing, the mirror image. I think all human cultures then will reflect the same structure, the same understanding the idea that death reigns apart from Christ. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.